This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. Now, we thought that everyone deserved a feel-good episode full of rainbows and unicorns. But instead, we're going to talk about thermonuclear annihilation again. Because if there's anything we're about, it's giving the audience what they want. Yeah, this is going to be a rather grim hour. But at least two of the three movies we're talking about today are really worth your attention. So even though they might be about the end of the world as we know it, We hope you stick with us. So far this season, each episode has been about Cold War anxieties and how they made their way into popular culture, particularly films. We've looked at the Red Scare and the paranoia about enemies in our midst that we can't identify. This begins as soon as World War II is over, even before, really, and was apparent in movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Manchurian Candidate. We've discussed how the Pentagon Papers, Watergate, and the Church Committee's revelations all undermined American confidence in their government. Movies of the mid-1970s capitalized on the fear of what was being done by clandestine entities in the name of American security. In the Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, and even a love story like The Way We Were, Hollywood assumed moviegoers didn't need a lot of convincing to believe that the military-industrial complex had run amok. And in the last episode, we looked at the aptly named MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction, and how two movies drawing inspiration from two novels could take very different approaches to portraying Americans' fears that nuclear Armageddon was quite possibly beyond our control. Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, both explored how a nuclear war might start. Today, we're going to look at how American, British, and Australian writers and filmmakers imagined how the world as we know it might end. We'll be talking about On the Beach, a 1959 film directed by Stanley Kramer from a 1957 novel by Anglo-Australian author Neville Schutt. And then we'll jump forward to talk about two made-for-television movies that came out within months of each other in 1983 and 1984. The ABC production, The Day After, and the BBC production, Threads. All three were focused on what the fallout, literally and figuratively, would be from a nuclear war. In fact, On the Beach starts long after the actual nuclear war is over. So what are the lies agreed upon that we're going to take a hard look at this week? Well, the first lie is that before the serious anti-nuke movement of the 1980s, most people were rather blasé about the threat of thermonuclear annihilation. 
references to duck and cover and the supposed magical characteristics of plywood desks to shield children from nuclear blasts have become established lore about the nuclear obliviousness of the 1950s and early 60s in Western society, particularly in America. The story goes that it's only after the Cuban Missile Crisis that people started to really take the threat seriously, and that it was the anti-nuke movement of the 1980s that was effective in curbing U.S. and Soviet nuclear ambitions. We're going to explore how that simply isn't the case. And the second lie follows from that one. We've all been taught that the Cuban Missile Crisis was the closest we ever came to midnight on the nuclear doomsday clock and that the anti-nuke movement drew strength from that event. But in fact, in many ways, the opposite was true. Because we didn't actually go over the cliff, people got rather complacent for quite a while. And the third lie is that we had any idea what the nuclear holocaust would look like, let alone what would cause it. How can you imagine the unimaginable is a question that filmmakers of other dour topics have to contend with. The Holocaust, for example. Slavery. For obvious reasons, there are moral and ethical guidelines surrounding representing these very real tragedies. Yeah, and, and but for imagining nuclear war, there are no rules. So those who wanted to warn against nuclear weapons and who wanted to scare the crap out of us so that we would agitate and protest against building more, even bigger ones, made choices. Our three films take very different approaches to the aftermath of nuclear war. Some of the writers' and directors' choices were good faith efforts based on what was known at the time. Other choices were influenced by what they thought their viewers would find important or what was touted by scientists who wanted to either support or challenge the viability of nuclear warfare. So all of our movies this week, Brian, they have a very explicit anti-nuke message. So we're going to be looking at, you know, what is the real story about the anti-nuke movement or to use the parlance of Katie Morosky's pamphlets at the end of the way we were, ban the bomb. And, and what were the ways that it showed up on our screens? Well, as we've mentioned in the context of other topics, the early 1980s saw a major ratcheting up of bellicose rhetoric by both Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And this was after a fairly prolonged period of progress in terms of nuclear test treaties and a reduction in nuclear arms across the Cold War divide. And in response to this increasingly aggressive stance, Hollywood, academia, and many of the same people who had protested Vietnam a decade earlier found themselves protesting again against nuclear weapons. This newfound sense of urgency on the left about the nuclear question, combined with a newfound relaxing of the censorship rules governing TV programming, you know, at least in the US, as we know, in Europe, it had always been laxer. And so in late 1983 and early 1984, we had two made-for-TV movies, one in the US and one in Britain, that attempted to de depict what the aftermath of a nuclear war would actually look like. Most American listeners over the age of 50 or so probably remember watching The Day After. I certainly did. And similarly, Threads is vividly remembered by Britons of a certain age. In both countries, these TV events, and that's what they were, giant 
television events, took place just before the vast expansion of cable TV and you know other possibilities to kind of drown out what network television could could provide. And so therefore you have these events that um, all classes, ages and regions and political affiliations experience at the same time. Yeah, it was definitely what used to be called a water cooler moment, you know, the next day, like where you could assume that everybody has watched the same thing and therefore everybody can talk about it the next day. I absolutely remember watching the day after and I can definitely attest to how traumatized the British public were um, by, by threads. But, you know, we also want to acknowledge that even before Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove were released in the mid-60s, there was another post-nuclear film that was based on the 1957 novel by Neville Shute called On the Beach. Now, the novel was serialized in over 40 newspapers and was a bestseller when it was finally published, you know, as a single volume. And so it had a really, really wide reach. And the subsequent film that was released in 1959, it was treated also as a very big deal. Yeah, I, I remember one of the first sort of grown-up novels I actually read was On the Beach, and and it was uh, I'm proud of that. I actually saw read the book before seeing the movie. Um, as a film, though, it wasn't a huge commercial success. All the reviewers thought it successfully conveyed the grim reality that would result from nuclear war. It was a very expensive movie to make, and the audience was was those who, in the late 1950s, you know, wanted to think seriously about the threat that faced them. Nevertheless, uh, it's interesting to look at the coverage of the movie when it came out. Mayor Wagner of New York attended the New York premiere. And uh, on the same evening, the Soviet ambassador to the UK attended the London premiere. And in Japan, because of course, remember the one country that had experienced uh, nuclear bombs was Japan. And so that was a lot of attention was paid to how much attention they were paying to the opening of this movie. Um, So in Japan, members of the imperial family attended the opening in Tokyo. And even though there was no commercial release in the USSR, Gregory Peck and his wife attended a screening that was held on the same night as the premiere was held elsewhere at a workers' club along with 1,200 Soviet dignitaries. That's kind of amazing. And, and the book was a bestseller. So it's evident that there was already a clearly articulated and culturally resonating movement against nuclear bombs, tests, and warfare in the 1950s. So let's set out the plot to On the Beach. Neville Shute's novel was adapted for the screen by John Paxton, who had written the screenplays for the film noir, Murder My Sweet, and Brando's The Wild One. Stanley Kramer both produced and directed the film. In both roles, he spent much of his career making issue movies, from Home of the Brave in 1949, about the persecution of a black soldier, to Judgment at Nuremberg in 1961. And of course, he may be best known, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, in 1968. His his filmography as both producer and director is beyond impressive. 
Yeah, when I was um, reminding myself of it for for uh, for this episode, I, it's really quite astounding the 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 breadth of things that he was connected to. So, on the beach, starred Gregory Peck as an American sub captain with possibly the most white American name ever, <laughs> Dwight Towers, who also actually maybe could be a porn star name, but anyway, (laughs) who has had to bring his submarine and crew to Australia after a nuclear war has wiped out the Northern Hemisphere. Ava Gardner plays Moira, a cynical and lonely woman who is dealing with the impending arrival of the radioactive fallout in the Southern Hemisphere by self-medicating with alcohol. Fred Astaire, surprisingly, plays British scientist Julian Osborne, who had been involved in the development of nuclear weapons. Anthony Perkins plays Peter Holmes, an officer in the Australian Navy. And Donna Anderson plays his wife, who has already begun losing her sanity as she refuses to accept that her newborn baby will end up dying of radiation poisoning in a matter of months. Like we said, this week's movies do not have cheerful plots. No, and I actually just have to make the point that I think all three of them have dead babies in them as well, because that's what happens in radiation poisoning. It's kind of, yeah, they do it differently in each film, but they're all there. Um, But yeah, the On the Beach opens after the war is over, and it is incredibly effective at conveying the eerie inevitability of an invisible poison making its way south on the jet stream. Uh, No destruction needs to be shown. In an early scene at a cocktail party in Melbourne, Astaire's scientist establishes the parameters of human existence all our characters are living within. And Don Anderson, as the new mother, expresses what could be seen as the refusal of the world's population to truly see the threat we face. That's wishful thinking, if ever I heard it. I'm not against wishful thinking, not now. Look, they pushed us too far. They didn't think we'd fight no matter what they did. And they were wrong. We fought. We expunged them. We didn't do such a bad job on ourselves. With the interesting result that the background level of radiation in this very room is nine times what it was a year ago. Don't you know that? Nine times. We're all doomed, you know. The whole silly, drunken, pathetic lot of us doomed by the air we're about to breathe. We haven't got a chance. I won't have it, Julian. I won't. There is hope. There has to be hope. There's always hope. We just can't go on like this. We can't. We... I shouldn't drink, you know. I'd inevitably say something brilliant. Sorry. So after this, where we see the characters struggling in different ways with this impending reality, Peck, Perkins, and Astaire are all sent out on a joint U.S.-Australian military, but also scientific mission in the submarine. It's the one submarine that's left to try and determine just how extensive the fallout has been in the North, in in part to try and figure out how quickly it'll arrive in the South, but also 
to find out who or what is producing a constant but nonsensical Morse code message that has been intercepted transmitting from California, which also means that there's still electricity there. So this is kind of confuses their um, sense in Australia of, of what, where exactly everything, uh, you know, where everything is at this point. Yes. Yeah, so first, you know, Captain Towers sails into San Francisco Harbor. Through the periscope, they can see the deserted streets of the city. Not a soul anywhere. No one has survived. But after being given a chance to look through the scope because it's hometown, one of the crew jumps overboard and swims to shore, determined to die at home, even if it means he'll die quickly. Leaving him to his fate, uh, the sub heads to San Diego, where one of the crew goes ashore in protective clothing and eventually locates the source of the Morse code message, a Coke bottle caught in the pull string of a window blind bobbing up and down on the transmitter key as the wind blows the blind to and fro. Yeah, it's a extremely eerie um, sequence that this man sort of walking through uh, and and eventually finding this this sort of random accident. And he he pulls the lever on what is also kind of inexplicably the last, uh, electric power station that seems to have just kept running, even though it never had regular maintenance. So, you know, nobody has been there to maintain it. And that answers the question of, you know, why this was even possible. But this ends the last hope that somehow people have survived. There's nothing for the crew to do but return to Australia and wait out the inevitable. Along the way, there's a conversation about how mankind could have done this to itself. And Astaire, again, as the scientist Osborne, you know, sets out the blunt truth of the matter. And so here is Osborne again um, being the truth teller. Who do you think started it? The war? Albert Einstein. <laughs> You're kidding. Do you really want to know who I think started the war? Yeah. Why? You're an egghead, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> who would ever have believed that human beings would be stupid enough to blow themselves off the face of the earth? I don't believe it even now. Well, we didn't want a war. We didn't start it. Come on now, how did it start? The trouble with you is you want a simple answer. And there isn't any. The war started when people accepted the idiotic principle that peace could be maintained by arranging to defend themselves with weapons they couldn't possibly use without committing suicide. And Astaire, he's really good in this role. He's, I mean, just really impressive. Once back home, the various characters deal with their impending deaths in different ways. Everyone in Australia has been given a cyanide capsule to take once the fallout arrives. Better to die quickly than a painful death from radiation poisoning. Osborne takes up car racing, you know, pushing the envelope and tempting death on the track. Uh, Dwight and Mora find love you know, temporarily and some solace in each other's company and, and in, in doing ordinary things like fishing. Anthony Perkins' character wrestles with when to give the pill to his baby and his wife 
who has already had a complete mental breakdown. Eventually, the military loses contact with bases in northern Australia, signaling that the radiation has arrived on the continent. And inevitably, even in Melbourne, people start showing symptoms. At this point, Perkins kills his wife, his baby, and himself. Osborne commits suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning in his garage in his beloved racing car. The remaining American crewmen of the sub decide they want to try and get home, which is totally irrational as many of them are already sick and dying. But Peck Towers acquiesces and agrees to sail with them, even though, you know, they'll be lucky to even get out of Australian waters. The film ends with Moira watching the sub sail out of the harbor while the remnants of a Salvation Army, you know, revivalist, Christian revivalist band that we've heard and seen throughout the the movie um, play under a sign that reads, there is still time, brother. So pretty powerful stuff for 1959. Yeah, it is impressive to think this was uh, even out there in 1959. And that's kind of one of the points we have to make today. Yeah, I completely agree about On the Beach. I mean, it feels really grown up for uh, 1959. I mean, this is not your Doris Day Rock Hudson rom-com. This is not your let's kind of smooth things over and and make them all bland. It's it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And and I also agree, you're right, that Fred Astaire is is really uh, fantastic in this as as really his only uh, straight dramatic role, and he won an Oscar for it. I, I did not uh, so know that. Yeah, I, yeah I, I agree. I think it was really good. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. I mean, it's major star power, which is also one of the why you would think it's it's a, it's a significant film, and you have to also anticipate that it's not going to be that popular with people who are used to the the normal Hollywood film. But to have Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner and Fred Astaire, I mean. What what better cast can you have than that heading it up? And it it shows that there you know you could make serious films if you had star power behind it. And clearly, uh, that that was what happened here. But it took I think a, much a lot of time had to pass before we could truly appreciate a film like On the Beach. And maybe it's because a few decades later it becomes a major topic again to have this discussion about nuclear war and anti-nuke movement growing in popularity. And that brings us to our uh, our other films that come out in the early 1980s. The Day After was 1983 and Threads in 1984. But, you know, as an American, I, as a young, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade, The Day After was a major television event. And I mean that because like they, the schools had a thing on it. I mean, Carl Sagan was on after after the film ended to talk about the science. I mean, it was it was uh, for for Americans a one of those, as you said, water cooler moments, but also for for kids. And I mean, they really made a point of having kids see this. And I was like, you know, I was it's a little fifth sixth grader, and I was horrified by it. Um, and it was in fact the highest rated television movie of all time. Yeah, it was. Uh- I remember it, and I'm I'm struck by, of course, that I, I'm older than you are because <laughs> I was in high school at the point when it, when the, the when this came when this came out. Um, but uh, yeah, it was directed by Nicholas Meyer, 
who has a kind of a weird filmography. He directed two of the Star Trek films, among other things. And it was written by Edward Hume, whose career was mainly spent writing episodes for weekly TV drama series like Barnaby Jones and The Streets of San Francisco. And I have to say, frankly, it shows. The Day After starred Jason Robards, who famously said that he agreed to star in it because he thought it would be, you know, a more effective anti-nuke effort than marching in a thousand protests. Uh, besides him, we have John Cullum, Joe Beth Williams, John Lithgow, Amy Madigan, Arliss Howard, William Allen Young, and the stalwart of the 80s box office, Steve Gutenberg. Crucially, the movie is set in the American heartland in and around Kansas City. This is a landscape of farms and grain silos, but also Minutemen missile silos. Some of the characters are the city folk. Jason Robards is a doctor. His daughter is a student at the university where John Lithgow is a professor. John Cullum is a farmer whose daughter is about to get married to her high school sweetheart. William Allen Young is a soldier at the Air Force Base, whose job it is to turn the key to launch the missiles. It's also worth mentioning here that he's the movie's token black character. Unlike On the Beach, but like Threads, which we'll talk about next, The Day After actually depicts nuclear war. The cause of the conflict is rather simplistic, a highly unlikely scenario. The tensions begin in Germany with direct engagement between NATO and Warsaw Pact nations. We hear through car radios and TVs that geopolitical tensions are ratcheting up. People seem both concerned and complacent, going about their lives, but also noticing that the news seems to be getting more serious. There's a conversation in a barbershop between men of different generations, classes, and political leanings. We're going to play it and you'll hear the young man who's the one who's supposed to be getting married the next morning, the barber and others in the shop including John Lithgow, who, as I said, was a professor, and it's wonderful he is introduced as, quote, a science professor. <laughs> we don't know what science, just a science professor <laughs> who offers up a brief lesson in geopolitics and nuclear Make science. Make it pretty, Ollie. This is my last trim as a free man. Uh-huh. I'm getting married tomorrow. That's all right. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Glenn. Who knows? The president's speaking on television at six tonight. Maybe he'll tell us something new. They'll tell us what they want us to hear. Keep the panic at the low sweat stage. I really don't think either side wants to be the first to use a nuclear device. It's not a question of who, but where. Over whose real estate. Say we explode a nuclear bomb over their troops on our side. The fallout had been not drift over their side. They're crazy. How do they expect it's going to stop with just one bomb? You want to know what crazy is? Crazy is not staying out of other people's business. We shouldn't be over there in the first place. Well, maybe they'll contain it. After all, I've still got symphony tickets for tonight. The thing that bothers me is that damn launch on morning. What's that? That's when one side tells the other that they're going to fire their missiles as soon as they think the other guy's missiles are already on the way. You know, use them or lose them. <laughs> what do you really think the chances of something like that happening way the hell out here in the middle of nowhere? Nowhere? <laughs> There's no nowhere anymore. You're sitting next to the Whiteman Air Force Base right now. That's about 150 Minuteman missile silos spread halfway down the state of Missouri. That's 
an awful lot of bullseyes. Yeah, he's holding court there as, you know, things are going in the barbershop. Um, but in this part of the movie, as tensions are rising, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is referenced more than once, of course, as some kind of reassurance that those in power will pull back from the brink like they did the last time. And so here's the doctor, Jason Robards, and his wife talking in bed while watching the 11 o'clock news, reminiscing about what it was like in 1962. This action has been condemned by NATO foreign ministers as a blatant, unconscionable violation of international law. Press Secretary David Towns reports that both sides are engaged in frank and earnest talks aimed at finding ways to defuse the heightening crisis in Berlin. Oh my God, it's 1962 all over again. Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you remember Kennedy on television? Telling Khrushchev to turn his boats around? Full retaliatory response. He didn't bat an eye. We were in New York in bed. Just like this. Remember? Under <laughs> 18th Street. Meatball sandwiches from Sharkies. Your last year's residency. Yes. Where we made Maryland that night. We got up, went to the window, looked for the bombs. Didn't happen. It's not going to happen now. Nah, people are crazy, but not that crazy. Well, you want to know from crazy? Hmm? The Donnelly's left today for Guadalajara. Guadalajara? I swear it. I spoke to her as they were pulling out. He said they were dovetailing their vacation at the rising international <laughs> Cut it out. I'm not kidding. What if it does happen? What do we do? As the events spiral out of control, we see some people panic. Traffic jams as people are trying to flee, although it's not clear what they're trying to flee or to where. And others who try to prepare by stocking their cellars with water. When the missiles finally launch, it's intentionally left unclear who fires first. There's an amazing visual of the missiles and the fire of their engines shooting out of what had been just seconds earlier the iconic American rural landscape. And more missiles are seen rising up from a field just past the college football stadium. Now, then we see the arrival of the Soviet missiles as nuclear missiles detonate, firestorms incinerate people and buildings. I, I remember being traumatized because like a horse in a field was incinerated. Like I thought that was mean. Um, now, there's, the footage is actually of real nuclear tests as well. Some of the famous ones we've seen over decades because they were... You know, they show up in, in any kind of depiction of nuclear war. So they are extremely realistic. The storylines of the various characters from this point on are less important, really, than the overarching narrative, which follows the variety of ways that individuals and families struggle to find food, water, and shelter as people slowly and not so slowly succumb to radiation. Because this is set in a small city and surrounding farms, the focus is really on the actions of individuals, not the structures of society. Yeah, there's, there are just some references to government, but what is reinforced is its uselessness. During a brief radio broadcast from the president, his message is juxtaposed with images of bodies lying unburied, buildings destroyed, 
horse-drawn carts replacing cars, and the sick and dying left uncared for. At the end of this clip, we'll hear John Lithgow and his students, including Stephen First, who you'll probably recognize as Flounder from Animal House, uh, responding to this you know, little mini lesson. You know, in the day after, very quickly, but also very briefly, we see the breakdown of order. And this is one of the things I kind of want to emphasize here is that because the the institutions are never really the focus, it means that that's something that we don't really notice as it becomes absent. And I think that that really is indicative of this being a, an American show Whereas we're going to be talking about threads in a minute, which is a you know a British show, and it, it it's just the the individualism of America, even sort of plays out and shows itself in you know a, a movie like this. John Cullum's character returns to his farm to find that it's been taken over by squatters, and they just shoot him dead without any qualms or hesitation. Amy Madigan's character, very near the end of the movie, gives birth, surrounded by people dying of radiation poisoning, and she laughs in despair at the world that her child is being born into. But the film ends with a positive interaction, as Jason Robards, who finally manages to return to basically the burnt-out rubble that was his home, also confronts a squatter, but instead of being met with violence, he's offered something to eat. Yeah, again, this film focuses on individuals and their experiences in the immediate aftermath of a nuclear war. 
And as listeners of this podcast know, what interests us is how movies are windows into the cultures that produce them. So it's very interesting to juxtapose the American made-for-TV movie, The Day After, with its British counterpart, Threads, because they are diametrically opposed in, in a lot of both their style of how they're made and and some ways their message as well. Yeah, Threads was broadcast on the BBC in September of 1984. And uh, so that means one just sort of structural thing is that it has no commercials. So there's no kind of little sections that break it, uh, break it apart. It was written by Barry Hines, a novelist and a screenwriter who often collaborated with the great Ken Loach, uh, a master of gritty films about the struggles of, of working class people. Uh, Threads was produced and directed by Mick Jackson, who had a substantial background in documentary work, which makes sense because this is sort of filmed as a docudrama. Although he's another person whose filmography would just make your head spin because he he made stuff ranging from from this to, I kid you not, the Whitney Houston, Kevin Costner melodrama, The Bodyguard, and the HBO biopic about the autistic activist Temple Grandin. You know, as I said, Threads is presented as a docudrama with a narrator narrator who's who's kind of presenting its events as if there could somehow miraculously be a, a future observer of these events. Um, here's how the show starts. And I think it's really kind of an important way that it sets up what the questions are that the show is going to be uh, looking at. In an urban society, everything connects. Each person's needs are fed by the skills of many others. Our lives are woven together in a fabric. But the connections that make society strong also make it vulnerable. Yeah, and as you said, it's kind of there's almost this idea that sometime in the future they're narrating what has happened here by there's like a computer screen showing at this stage there is 8.8 million dead and this many, you know, and it's like month by month and and it's all based on hard science. And and the, one of the reasons why Threads affects me and I think most viewers more than the day after, you know, affects us harder is that it is this matter of fact. This is just how it is. And and uh, and just forget all the sort of you know actors you recognize having little problems that in their lives as well as as uh, the end of the world. The focus here is on the destruction of society, systems, governance, services and all of the million things that we don't think about that constitute the fabric of community, hence threads. The horror of the actual nuclear event is the result of a much more complex breakdown of geopolitical tensions involving Iran and other Cold War proxies. The film is set in and around Sheffield, which is a mid-sized post-industrial city in Yorkshire. But of course, Britain is a very small set of countries. the notion of big, wide open spaces like in the United States just don't really exist. So even though it's set in and around Sheffield, it really is very much a sense of, you know, anything that's happening there is also happening throughout Britain. Local government officials are in Sheffield supposedly also deputized with certain emergency roles in case of nuclear war. 
And what Hines and Jackson really want people to confront is the lie that any amount of preparation will have any chance of succeeding. And we should note that Hines and Jackson actually shadowed such a group of civil servants in their emergency drills to get a sense of what preparations looked like, which she found to be half-hearted and half-baked, apparently. But, you know, they actually used real footage in some of those TV, fake TV news broadcasts about, you know, what they would do in a drill. And a lot of the manuals are legitimate. So they they really strive for authenticity in threads. So the, the plot of threads you know, follows one of these officials, members of his family, and others. There are no stars in this film, and many small roles are taken up by locals who responded to a casting call. Uh, and their characters are summarily dropped as well. You know, you're just, the camera's following all this misery. We start with Ruth and Jimmy, a young couple, expecting their first child and buying their first flat. Separated when the blast happens, Jimmy goes out to find her, and we simply never see him again. Yes, and, and the officials in their bunker try to go on governing and managing the post-apocalyptic world. But one of the crucial differences between Threads and The Day After is that this film stays with this world much longer than The Day After does. No, so we are forced to really grasp the futility of that. And over time, as nuclear winter sets in and even you know, martial law is incapable of restoring any semblance of a you know, society, even an authoritarian one, the viewer sees how the myriad components of modern life work together to make us who we are. And then what happens when all that collapses? Part of the pseudo-documentary feel of the piece is that there is this narrative voiceover. And we're going to play a montage of various narrative interjections that happen throughout the film and that help track the disintegration of this fabric of society, the threads. Britain has emergency plans for war. If central government should ever fail, power can be transferred instead to a system of local officials dispersed across the country. In an urban district like Sheffield, there is already a designated wartime controller. He's the city's peacetime chief executive. If it should suddenly become necessary, he can be given full powers of internal government. When or if this happens depends on the crisis itself. In the last few days, emergency headquarters like this have been hastily improvised up and down the country in the basements of town halls and civic centres. It's 8.30 a.m., 3.30 in the morning in Washington. Over the past four days, neither the president nor his senior staff will have had more than a few hours rest. This is when they may be asleep. This is when Western response will be slowest. The first fallout dust settles on Sheffield. It's an hour and 25 minutes after the attack. An explosion on the ground at Crewe has sucked up this debris and made it radioactive. The wind has blown it here. This level of attack has broken most of the windows in Britain. Many roofs are open to the sky. Some of the lethal dust gets in. In these early stages, the symptoms of radiation sickness and the symptoms of panic are identical. Money has had no meaning since the attack. The only viable currency is food, given as reward for work or withheld as punishment. In the grim economics of the aftermath, 
there are two harsh realities. The survivor who can work gets more food than one who can't, and the more who die, the more food is left for the rest. Collecting this diminished first harvest is now literally a matter of life and death. The stresses of hypothermia, epidemic, and radiation fall heavily on the very young and the old. Their protective layers of flesh are thinner. In the first few winters, many of the young and old disappear from Britain. The fact that Thread stays with the the, the aftermath much longer, I think they after it's six months or something, maybe. But here they go, um, I think it's 13 years after the the nuclear holocaust um and we see that ruth dies when her uh, her daughter called jane in the credits but never named on the screen is about 10 she goes on to live in what resembles a a primitive and pre-verbal world like it's there's languages gone they're living in castles the language is stripped down to the bare essentials um her horrible life she's raped after a fight over food uh and then the film ends with jane giving birth to a deformed stillborn baby and that's where the movie ends 13 years after you know the day the world ends and and you're right to have pointed out that in all three films on the beach day after and threads we have the use of pregnancy and childbirth and and and, and you know a, a newborn baby really is used to kind of symbolize and represent the future and, you know, the future that will or will not happen. And, and I think that's something worth pointing out because in, in on the beach, we have a baby who is in fact, you know, coldly, I mean, not coldly in that, of course, it, it basically causes the mother of the baby, Anthony Perkins' wife to, to really have a break with reality and can't cope at the prospect of having to, you know, kill her child rather than have it suffer. Uh, And in Threads, you know, the movie ends with a deformed, stillborn baby, which is uh, encapsulation of of the world that the, the writer and director want to present. And it's just, it's only in the day after where, you know, they can't help but kind of leave us with this little bit of optimism, like, oh, a new child is born. And because the baby in that, you know, the mother, Amy Madigan is, you know, rueful about the world that it's born into, but there still is this newborn baby that doesn't seem to have anything inherently wrong with it. And so it's a, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All three, three films, three representations of this and honestly i found you know the on the beach one just more i uh, horrifying and sad in its own way because it's a healthy baby and a looks like a normal world but we know it won't be that way for long so yeah the plots of all these movies are brutal But we'd like to spend a bit of time looking at why On the Beach and the anti-nuke movement of 1950s and 60s is largely forgotten, why in the early 1980s a new wave of nuclear disarmament activism emerged, and then describe how imagined after-effects of a nuclear holocaust were touted as fact and then deployed by movie makers 
This all starts in the Marshall Islands, which was an American territory until 1979, a South Pacific collection of atolls closer to Australia than any other continent. Between 1946 and 1958, 67 nuclear bombs were tested, i.e. detonated there. Really, that's what they mean. Uh, the bikini is named after the Bikini Atoll, the site of dozens of these tests. You know, nice little synergy there culturally. This the idea of making light of, of nuclear testing by naming a bathing suit after it, combined with the notorious inadequacy of duck and cover instructions to make it seem like people really weren't taking the threat of nuclear war seriously in the 1950s. Let's meet Bert the Turtle, who knows just what to do. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the Safety Commission of the National Education Association. Probably many people who know about Duck and Cover have never actually watched the Duck and Cover little, you know, public service announcement that was played for, for children back in the 50s. So Neville Shute, who was actually a Brit and an engineer by training, he emigrated to Australia after World War II, and he wrote on the beach in 1957. And as we said, it was a serialized um, very, very broadly. And of course, this happens in the context of the Bikini Atoll tests. And the increase in the number of nuclear powers and their testing also, during this decade, that's part of this context of him writing this book as, as well. And we've included a link on the website to a mesmerizing video. All it's, it's like an animation that shows all the nuclear detonations from 1945 to 1998. And it's really worth watching. Then you can kind of keep in mind what we're talking about here and the different dates of the various things we're talking about. And then... In this animation, you can see the uh, intensifying and then decreasing rates of nuclear test um, detonations over these decades. And it's really interesting to watch how uh, those things connect to each other. But it wasn't just Australians who were acutely aware of the threat of nuclear war in the 1950s and early 1960s, before the Cuban Missile Crisis, in other words. Over the Easter weekend in 1958, the British group Direct Action Committee Against Nuclear War organized a march from London, England, to Aldermaston, where the British Atomic Weapons Research Labs were located, about 52 miles away. That same year, the campaign for nuclear disarmament first met. The CND, between 1959 and 1963, led similar marches over Easter, but in the reverse direction. 
At its height, hundreds of thousands of people made the march, which eventually simply became an annual event in London because the numbers were so big that the logistics of the route and permits became unworkable. Yes, and it's an interesting little uh, tidbit that it's actually out of this movement that we get the peace sign that we all think of as connected to the anti-war movement in the United States. That symbol that you can all imagine in your minds, the circle with the vertical line through it and then the inverted V, it actually represents the semaphore symbols for N and D, nuclear disarmament. And actually, you know, I remember in Threads, you, you they, they depict a, an a anti-nuclear march. Um, and this, this kind of, I think, reference the fact that there was you know, pretty broad-based movement in England. Uh, and the same year that the first Aldermaston March took place, Linus Pauling presented a petition to the UN signed by more than 11,000 scientists calling for an end to the testing of nuclear weapons. Pauling is the only scientist to have been awarded on shared Nobel Prizes in multiple categories, and his work in molecular biology formed the foundation of our understanding of DNA and the mapping of the genome. Pauling was also involved with the baby tooth survey, a a longitudinal study that showed conclusively that above ground testing resulted in radioactive strontium-90 being found at unhealthy levels in baby teeth. So we have, you know, these, these really big deal responses to the nuclear threat uh, developing in the 1950s. But another very important development uh, in anti-nuke weapons activism prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis has, like many efforts about and by women, been virtually silenced and all but erased from historical memory in the decades since. And this story, we're going to take a little detour here and talk about this in a bit more detail because it interestingly intersects with two Cold War things that we've discussed already. The action of the House Un-American Activities Committee in its endless hunt for commies and a callback to good old Katie Morosky's ban the bomb efforts at the end of The Way We Were. Right. I mean, in 1961, Bella Abzug, who's someone we talked about in season two on one in our episode on feminism, and Dagmar Wilson organized the largest women's peace protest action of the 20th century, the Women's Strike for Peace. Held in over 60 cities and in front of the Washington Monument, women struck from work and home to participate. It was prompted by the U.S. government's declaration that nuclear tests would resume after a three-year moratorium that had been largely the result of Pauling's efforts. But here's where their work crashes into the work of HUAC. And we have the great research work of historian Amy Swerdlow really to thank for this bit of of knowledge. In 1962, in response to their efforts, the leaders of the WSP, Women's Strike for Peace, were called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Yes, it was still operating in 1962, although with less fanfare than in previous years. And just to to give a, a, a sense of who these women were that were and their actions that were seen to be 
so threatening that they came under the investigation of the FBI and became the targets of HUAC. Here's a brief video made by the group describing some of the events that they organized and how it was framed as an issue of concern, particularly to women. Women of any race, creed, or political persuasion who will assume personal responsibility to work in the best ways they can devise in support of disarmament, economic planning for peace, and a strengthened United Nations. Most of them have families of small children, but some are single or childless or grandmothers. Most of them are busy women with little free time. Few have ever taken part before in any public movement. In January, this crowd of 1,000 people in Union Square in San Francisco is taking part in what has become women's international strike for peace. For weeks, they have written, cabled, or telephoned women they knew in other countries, asking them to prepare to act by demonstrating in their cities, asking action on disarmament. Women in more than 30 countries responded to the appeal. There was singing and folk dancing along with speech making to express their feeling of brotherhood for people of all nations. Wow, what crazy firebrands. I can totally see why why the government was worried about them. You know, but from the start, as Swerdlow writes, and this quoting her, the surveillance establishment and the right-wing press were wary. They recognized early what the Rand Corporation described obliquely as a WSP potential to impact on military policies. Uh, Jack Lotto, a Hearst columnist, charged that although the women described themselves as a quote, group of unsophisticated wives and mothers who are loosely organized in a spontaneous movement for peace, there is nothing spontaneous about the way the pro-Reds have moved in on our mothers and are using them for their own purposes, end quote. On the West Coast, the San Francisco Examiner claimed to have proof that scores of well-intentioned, dedicated women were being made dupes of by known communists. So you see, these women don't actually get to be seen as politically savvy. They're not autonomous subjects. They had no agency. That's how they are presented. But the reality is that HUAC just didn't know what it had gotten itself into. First of all, the WSP took a different tack from everyone else who had been a target of the committee. Perhaps it's in part because it had learned lessons from them, but also perhaps in part because it was an organization of women as opposed to men. And so the approach, just sort of how they thought about approaching the committee just was fundamentally different. Anyway, what they did was they went on the offensive. They they actually, before the committee was able to send out a press release saying that they had subpoenaed women in this organization, the WSP did, informing the world that its members had been subpoenaed and con- condemning the act, stating, quote, with the fate of humanity resting on a push button, the quest for peace has become the highest form of patriotism, close quote. So in other words, they changed the terms of the confrontation. It was now going to be a contest over which group was more patriotic. What they asked was, 
what was the extent of one's dedication to saving America's children from nuclear extinction? It's really, I mean, it's something most of us don't know that much about. The details of the HUAC WSP confrontation is really quite epic and in their own way, hilarious. And at one point, obviously thinking he was about to strike the deadly rhetorical blow, the lawyer for the committee confronted Ruth Myers, who lived on Long Island. Quote, Miss Myers, it appears from public records that a Ruth Myers residing at 1751 East Street, Brooklyn, New York, on July 27th, 1948, signed a Communist Party nomination, nominating petition. Are you the Ruth Myers who executed that petition? Meyer shot back. No, sir. I never lived in Brooklyn. This is not my signature, and my husband could never get me to move there. <laughs> Let's just say that the committee members had their asses handed to them, although the women testifying would never have used such undignified language, certainly not Ruth Myers. So, you know, this is a little bit of a humorous diversion. I just love the, the notion that she's like, my husband could never get me to move to Brooklyn. <laughs> Um, but we wanted to, to point out that, you know, these are just some of the many ways in which people across the globe pursued peace activism and articulated resistance to nuclear armaments in the era of on the beach before the Cuban Missile Crisis and the subsequent decline in nuclear arms buildup that lasted until the next period of acute nuclear fear in the early 1980s. We've spoken elsewhere and at length about the ratcheting up of, of bellicose rhetoric led by Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s. So we're not going to repeat that here except to remind listeners that the context of increased concern and anti-nuke activism in that period, including the day after and threads, was prompted by those developments. What we did want to talk about for just a minute is what we've identified as our lie number three, which is the certainty with which the aftermath of a nuclear war was depicted, particularly in threads. And the timing is really interesting because it is only one month after the day after was shown on TV that what came to be called the TAPS group, named after the scientists in it, published their game-changing article in Science Magazine entitled Nuclear Winter, Global Consequences of Multiple Nuclear Explosions. So the TAPS group, the people, were R.P. Turku, B. Toont, B. Ackerman, J.B. Pollock, and most notably, Carl Sagan, who was sort of recruited for the group and also participated with them, knowing full well that he had the sort of star power and notoriety to bring this, this hypothesis of um, the inevitability of nuclear winter as a result of nuclear explosions to a broader public. And, and notice that it's also in Science Magazine, which has a broad readership as opposed to in an academic journal. Yes, and the argument was simple and designed for you know, the specific circumstances of the era. Even a limited nuclear war, whatever that is, would have devastating effects on the global climate, resulting in what they termed a nuclear winter. As a result, even the Star Wars scenario, which was you know, being touted 
at the time and would become more so uh, that that this you know some, there's somehow a technology that could be developed to intercept nuclear missiles in space, or the, the argument that an accidental but limited detonation of n- nuclear weapons could be manageable was very loudly and very effectively challenged. So here's Carl Sagan introducing the American viewing public to this idea on the panel discussion that aired on ABC after the day after. I remember this very vividly because I was a huge Carl Sagan fan. And at the time, I didn't know who the other people were. I think I'd recognize Henry Kissinger. But he's on. he was another panelist, William F. Buckley Jr., Elie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor and author, Brent Scowcroft, and William McNamara from the National Security Establishment, all rounding out this panel. It's a fascinating time capsule, and let's play a bit of it. Let me raise the question, Carl Sagan, you see any merit in this movie, or, or is the movie simply an exercise in emotionalism which may cause despair rather than do anything useful? I think in this country we've uh, been sleepwalking during the last 38 years and uh, passed this problem without really coming to grips with how dire and compelling it is. And I think ABC should be congr- congratulated for spurring what I hope will be a year-long debate on this issue. But it's my unhappy duty to uh, point out that the reality is much worse than what what has been portrayed in this movie. And this new emerging reality has significant policy implications. The nuclear winter that will follow even a small nuclear war, especially if uh, cities are targeted, as they almost certainly would be, uh, involves a pall of dust and smoke which would reduce the temperatures, not just in the northern mid-latitudes, but pretty much globally to sub-freezing temperatures for months. In addition, it's dark. It, the radiation from radioactivity is much more than we've been told before. Agriculture will be wiped out. And uh, it's very clear that uh, beyond the one or two billion people who would be killed directly in a major nuclear war, five, 7,000 megatons, something like that, that uh, the overall consequences would be much more dire. And the biologists who've been uh, studying this think that there is a real possibility of the extinction of the human species from such a war. Let me stop you on that point, because uh, if our viewers were not depressed enough after seeing the movie, I suspect you've brought them to an even greater nadir. Yes. So as Ted Koppel says here, he's the moderator. I'm sure you all recognized that very familiar voice. Sagan manages to make an already depressing evening even gloomier. The uh, day after was released in November of 83. Science Magazine published the article in December of 1983. But of course, you know, it had been all the research and the writing of it had been done by the time Sagan appeared on the on the panel. But we can see how released in September of 1984, the depiction of a post-nuclear reality in threads is very much influenced by this idea of nuclear winter. But the thing is, it was a theory, not yet tested beyond the work of the TAPS group, which in turn stated that they had the explicit aim of promoting nuclear disarmament. They wanted the US and the USSR to stop arguing that a limited nuclear exchange could have limited damage. 
The conclusions reached over time and most crucially, using the advanced climate modeling technology available today, suggest that low atmosphere short range missiles would not result in that level of atmospheric disruption. But the higher you go, both in terms of altitude and numbers of bombs, the more damage is done. But as the film critic Peter Bradshaw stated, Threads was the most horrifying movie he has ever seen. And it raises the question whether our sense of its realism, as opposed to what we see in the day after, which seems a bit sanitized, is actually the result of the successful campaign by Sagan and others to turn a theory into a completely internalized fact. In the end, our lies for this episode were about how long during the Cold War did huge numbers of people across the globe stand up and shout that they didn't want any of it done in their name. It turns out it wasn't just right after the Cuban Missile Crisis and then during the Reagan-Thatcher Star Wars era of the late 70s and early 80s. Consistently, across decades and continents, and even when such protesting resulted in accusations of commie sympathizing, men and women said no. And whether it was Robert Oppenheimer or Linus Pauling, Carl Sagan even, scientists and doctors have helped lead this movement by harnessing data, and in some cases, taking advantage of the media machine to present theories that no one wants to ever have the opportunity to test. Also, we didn't have a chance to incorporate her work here, but another very famous Australian activist, Dr. Helen Caldicott, was the subject of an Academy Award-winning National Film Board of Canada documentary entitled, If You Love This Planet, and we're going to link that to our website. Well, this has been quite an odyssey today, and if you've stuck with us through it all, you should now reward yourselves with an episode of Parks and Rec, perhaps, or an ice cream cone, or both. You deserve it. We have some fun episodes coming up, we swear. We'll be hanging out with Patrick Swayze and all the young, you know, hot guys in the Red Dawn crew. And of course, with James Bond. So come and join us. Lives Agreed Upon is written and produced by Brian Krim and Leah Parody. Our theme was written by Simon Parody. We are a proud partner of the New Books Network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode, as well as bonus content, visit our companion website, liesagreedupon.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at lies underscore upon. <laughs>